This podcast has been brought to you by the Physiological Society. Hello and welcome to Let's Get Physiological, the podcast where we explore some of the exciting science behind the mechanisms of life. For this episode, our theme is sport and exercise. We'll be speaking to Sam Scott about his recent study on the fitness trend of the moment, high intensity interval training or HIT, and to Ildis Armatov and Ruth Wood on how testosterone can affect athletic performance. I'm Emily Wilde and I'm Amy Warnock. Now, let's get physiological. High intensity interval training, also known as HIT, could definitely be considered one of the biggest fitness trends of the past few years. Due to its high intensity nature, it's often billed as a quick alternative to other forms of exercise, but there are still some barriers that prevent certain people from doing HIT. We spoke to Sam Scott, a postdoctoral researcher at the Muscle Health Research Centre at York University in Toronto, Canada, about a study that he's been working on, investigating the effectiveness of home-based HIT. Let's start at the beginning. What do we mean when we talk about HIT? So high-intensity interval training is quite a, a broad term. So simply it would be where you would have bouts of high-intensity exercise, so probably around 80% to 90% of your maximum interspersed with short recovery periods. Sounds simple enough, but are there any barriers that could prevent some people from doing it? The main barriers to high-intensity interval training, as far as the, the current research before our study was done, is because most of this research was done in strict supervised laboratory conditions. Um, so this creates additional barriers in itself. So, for example, you've still, still got the travel time needed to get to the lab to do the exercises. When a lot of these things are done, you'd either need a personal trainer or a researcher to be there to make sure that the individual is doing it at the right intensity. And a lot of these facilities and places can be quite intimidating, especially if you're quite exercise naive. So although it's time efficient, it creates these additional barriers that means that it's not always as easy to uptake as it would seem. So it does seem like there are a few problems associated with HIT. While HIT itself is very time effective, we often don't take into account travel time to and from the gym, so it might not save that much time after all. Without professional advice, it can be difficult to know if you're doing the exercises at the right intensity. And finally, a gym environment can be an incredibly intimidating place for someone who is not used to exercising regularly. So it may be that taking up HIT isn't as simple as it seems. So what was Sam interested in finding out in his study? In this study, we were interested to find out whether a new home-based HIT intervention would have high adherence and compliance in a group of obese, sedentary individuals. And we wanted to compare this to a group doing the recommended government amount of exercise and also compared to a laboratory-based HIT intervention that we know works. So the reason we chose these population was because they are a particularly exercise naive group. So we thought that that would be a, a good way to really test whether people were going to take this up. By introducing this home-based HIT strategy, 
Sam and his colleagues were hoping to overcome some of the common barriers to this type of exercise, such as eliminating the need to travel to the gym. So how effective was the home base hit strategy? Did people comply? Something that was unique about this study was the fact that we were monitoring adherence during the exercises. So we gave the participants these heart rate monitors that connected to an app. So we were looking to see whether the participants in the home base group would do the exercises and how often they would do it. And we actually found that they, they had a 97% adherence rate in the home-based HIT group, which was very similar to the lab-based group. And if you bear in mind that the lab-based group were doing this under my strict supervision, and if they didn't turn up to a session, I would call them to reschedule, whereas the home-based group were doing this completely on their own. So the compliance rates to the home-based HIT regime were extremely high. But were there any physiological benefits in comparison to the lab-based HIIT group? We found similar improvements in aerobic fitness, the insulin sensitivity, and then within the muscle biopsy samples, we found similar improvements in some classical markers of training adaptation. So it seems like home-based HIIT could be an effective workout strategy, as not only is it easy to adhere to, it also has similar physiological benefits to a lab-based HIIT programme. So where's next for this research? We need to emphasise that this is only a small feasibility study. So from the results that we've collected, it seems as though home-based HIIT is very effective, but we need to now go on and do larger scale interventions using much larger cohorts to really test home-based hits' true potential. Finally, we asked Sam what he thought about the implications for this type of research for people who don't regularly do exercise. A lot of exercise physiology at the moment is focused on developing ways to study how effective exercise is, but it's also our job to develop some strategies to increase exercise uptake and reduce these common exercise barriers. So if Home Hit offers one strategy by which we can increase the number of people who are reaching these activity guidelines or leading a more active life, then it's it's definitely important. So it looks like HIT in various forms, whether you're going to the gym or doing at home, may be around for a few more years yet. So it's time for, oh my God, I can't believe it's a research study, but it actually is. So this is the part of the show where we talk about some of the weird and wonderful research in the world of physiology. So Amy, are you a swimmer? I mean, I have, I have done some swimming. You've dabbled in, in, in swimming? In my life, yes. Okay, great. And when you swim, you know, I, I'm picturing, you know, swimming pool probably, maybe the sea. Yeah, I've swam in both. Great. <laughs> um, and have you ever swam in syrup? Uh, not, not that I can recall. Okay, well, <laughs> um, in 2005, there were two US researchers and they demonstrated that um, swimming in syrup is no slower than swimming in water. I mean, that's actually incredibly fascinating. I know. It's really not what you would expect. Absolutely. Um, and they actually won the 2005 Ig Nobel Prize. 
So for those of you that don't know what the Egg Nobel Prize is, it's absolutely fantastic. And it's basically a prize that's intended to celebrate the unusual, honour the imaginative and spur people's interest in science, medicine and technology. So it's like the Nobel Prize, but for slightly more hilarious experiments. And I think this is a stellar entry here. I mean, so they got 10 competitive swimmers and six recreational swimmers to swim in a swimming pool of water mixed with 310 kilograms of guar guam, which I think is some kind of sugar. It does sound like some sort of sugar, doesn't it? Um, apparently they had to go through 22 different approvals. So you had to get the <laughs> swimming pool to approve it, the local like council, authorities... But they found that compared to water, swimming in syrup, just as fast. And the reason is apparently that while you experience a more viscous drag, which is basically uh, friction from your movement through fluid, as the water gets thicker, you generate more forwards force from every stroke. And the two kind of cancel each other out. That's so interesting. Yeah. And hysterically, the two researchers actually went and collected their Ig Nobel Prize in swimming shorts. Oh, that's nice. I just, um, I feel bad for whoever's got to sort of deal with a cleanup operation. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And the swimmers. Yeah. I mean, yeah, that's not going to be funny. No. Okay, so now we're moving on to true or false. So this is the part of the show where we try and debunk common physiological myths or try and prove that they're actually true facts. Okay, so hit me with it. Yes, so again on the exercise theme, I have gone for the very well-known fact, I'm sure everyone's been told this at some point in their childhood life, which is... If you eat before you swim, you will get stomach cramps and drown and die. Oh, yes, I know this one. (laughs) But I think it is false because I recently swam 10 kilometers and had to stop at various points to just have a little snack to keep my energy levels up. And I am still alive. Well, first of all, congratulations on swimming 10 kilometers. And and being alive. (laughs) And being alive, yeah. Thank you. Um, So I think straight away you've obviously completely debunked the myth. Yeah. You're right. Yes, it is. uh, It's completely false. So basically the basis of this is that after a big meal, the blood in your body will be diverted to your stomach to help digest the meal. And the thinking behind this is that when there's less blood flow going to your arms and legs, you might be more likely to get cramps. So this is an interesting theory, but actually if we if we look down to it, there's still not very much evidence behind exactly what causes cramps and it's likely to be a lot more than just blood flow. So cramps are basically involuntary spasmodic contractions of skeletal muscle. And during exercise, they're quite often related to fatigue, so how tired you are. Mm-hmm. But they're also related to things like dehydration and electrolyte imbalance. So it's not, you know, one thing. It's not necessarily all about blood flow. Yeah. And they also really vary from person to person. So some people might feel cramps at certain times, some people don't. So it's really hard to pinpoint exactly what causes cramps. And what this theory is saying is that a lot of it's down to blood flow. But realistically, we've got enough blood in our bodies to keep our arms and legs functioning even though, yes, it is true, some blood will be diverted to the stomach mm-hmm. to help with digestion. But, you know, not enough that we will completely lose function in our arms and legs and get Yeah, cramped. I mean, that would be quite a design flaw, wouldn't it? It would a bit, wouldn't it? <laughs> um, so, yeah, as you said, and as you have proven by your 10k swim. Thank you. This is yep. false. Great. The effects of testosterone on sports performance hit the headlines recently when South African athlete Casta Semenya was banned from competing by the athletics governing body, the IAAF, 
without the use of medication to significantly reduce her testosterone levels. With debate still going on in terms of the science and the ethics of this case, we spoke to Ruth Wood, Professor of Integrative Anatomical Sciences at the University of Southern California, to try and understand some of the science behind how testosterone can affect athletic performance. But first, what is testosterone and what is its function? Testosterone is the major male hormone produced by the gonads, that is, the testes, in men. And it's important to note that testosterone is present in both men and women, but it's present in much higher degree in men than it is in women. Its principal function, of course, is in reproduction. So testosterone promotes the production of sperm, which is the male gamete and is essential for fertilization. But besides that, the body has receptors for testosterone in a whole variety of different places. And so in terms of muscle, the muscles have testosterone receptors, and when you have more testosterone, it promotes muscle growth. At the same time, testosterone is also lipolytic, which means that it reduces fat. So the more testosterone you have, the more muscle you have, the less fat you have. Testosterone also acts in the brain where it changes behavior. So although its primary function is in reproduction, it has these complementary functions throughout the body. So testosterone has two main effects in the body, androgenic effects, meaning the maturation of the sex organs, and anabolic effects, where testosterone stimulates the growth of muscle. Testosterone also acts in the brain, and there's evidence that suggests that high testosterone levels can increase aggression and motivation for competition. So what are the differences between male and female testosterone levels? So it's interesting to think about testosterone as being primarily a male hormone, which it is. The blood levels of testosterone are substantially higher in men than they are in women. And perhaps what's surprising is the notion that women have testosterone at all, because of course we think about it as a male hormone. And in fact, what's interesting is that testosterone is a necessary precursor to the production of the major female hormone, estrogen. And so that means that for a woman to make estrogen, she has to first make testosterone. And it also means that for a man to make testosterone, he also is only one enzymatic conversion away from making estrogen. So in fact, men have higher testosterone levels than women do, but women have some testosterone. And also women have higher estrogen levels than men do, but men have some estrogen. Women have lower levels of testosterone because while testosterone is essential for both male and female health, it plays a much bigger role in men. Testosterone stimulates the development of male secondary sex characteristics, like body hair and muscle growth, and it's essential in the production of sperm. However, even within the sexes, there can be large variation in testosterone levels. In fact, testosterone can be influenced by a huge variety of factors, such as genetics, even the time of day, and season can lead to variations in testosterone, making it quite hard to define what level of testosterone is considered to be normal. So how does testosterone relate to athletic performance? Well, as you can imagine, since testosterone promotes muscle mass, of course, it's also going to promote athletic performance. 
And this is why, historically, we have separated sports in competitions into men and women's divisions because the assumption is that men who generally have more testosterone will have higher athletic performance than women who have normally much lower levels. So if you have lower testosterone, you will have a reduction in muscle mass, an increase in fat mass, and lower energy levels. Conversely, if you have higher than normal testosterone levels, as can happen in some women with disorders of sexual development, then you can have an increase in muscle mass, a reduction in body fat, and an increase in athletic performance all things being equal. So it's been suggested that high testosterone levels could lead to better athletic performance. But is this true for all sports? We spoke to Ildis Armatov, Senior Lecturer in the School of Sport and Exercise Sciences at Liverpool John Moores University, about a study he was recently involved in looking at the relationship between athletic success and testosterone levels in female athletes. The aim of our study was to determine the interrelation between the resting serum testosterone levels of female athletes from different sporting disciplines and their athletic success. We found that testosterone levels were positively correlated with athletic success in sprinters only, indicating that about 40% of the variation in athletic success in sprinters can be explained by the testosterone levels. When we divided endurance athletes into long and middle distance athletes, we could not observe the benefits of having high testosterone levels for success, including 800 meter running. Instead, uh, highly elite long distance and middle distance athletes tended to have lower testosterone level than less successful athletes. So Ildis' study suggests that high testosterone levels appear to be particularly important in sports that require high levels of explosive strength, such as sprinting, but may play less of a role in performance for mid or endurance level athletes. So it may be that associating high testosterone levels with increased athletic performance across all sports isn't as simple as many people assume. So what are the other factors that can influence athletic performance? Well, as we mentioned earlier, genetics has been seen to influence athletic performance. So individual differences in our genetic propensity for things like muscle mass or various other kind of physical traits that might influence how fast you run or how strong you are. And I suppose even access to training facilities. So if you've got more access to high quality training facilities and training staff, you might also have an athletic advantage. So we know that testosterone can enhance athletic performance not only through increasing muscle mass, but also through its actions on the brain, where it may increase competitiveness and aggressiveness. However, as shown by Ildis's study, there's still debate over whether higher testosterone provides an advantage across all types of sporting events, with much of the research in this area showing conflicting results. This suggests that the controversial case surrounding the athlete Cassus Semenya may not be as clear-cut as we think and demonstrates the need for more in-depth research into the various physiological factors that can influence athletic performance. And now we move on to our Physiology in Films feature. The part of the show where we explore some of the physiology behind the blockbusters. So for this week, as we are on a sports and exercise science theme, I've decided to talk about the film Forrest Gump. 
Okay, so I have a big confession here. I have not actually watched Forrest Gump. I think I can forgive you. Um, And you're lucky because I'm going to explain what part of Forrest Gump I'm talking about. (laughs) Right. So Forrest Gump is quite a long film, as I'm sure many of you know. But there's one particular part in Forrest Gump where he goes for a run one day and then just decides to keep running for a really long time. Okay. How long are we talking here? Like an hour? We're talking three years, two months, 14 days and 16 hours. Oh, wow. So this is not just your average Saturday morning run. No, it's not a little Saturday morning jog before brunch. This is a, you know, three years of your life. That's a... That's, that is commitment. That really is, yeah. <laughs> so is this physiologically possible? Could we run for that long? That is what I try to find out. So first of all, obviously, I think it's important to try and find out the distance he runs. Uh, and luckily, someone else on the internet website called Centives has actually figured out roughly how many miles this was so basically in the film he runs past sort of seven or eight quite famous landmarks and what these people have done is they've taken these landmarks we know that he's running coast to coast in the states and he does this a few times and so knowing that they've sort of plotted a route on google maps that he's probably taken and this ends up being about 15,248 miles wow that's impressive it's quite the jog, isn't it? Okay. Uh, so that averages at about 91 miles a week. Oh, okay. So this is, so I expected it to be more. But, yeah. Um, so what, 91 miles, that's just under four marathons? Yeah, exactly. And when so... you put it like that, I mean, I'm definitely not a marathon runner. <laughs> I could not run four marathons per week, but that seems more doable. That's absolutely feasible. And so I think really the thing here is maybe not the distance per week, but perhaps just the fact that, you know, he is running for three years of his life. Yeah, I can um, imagine that takes its toll. Exactly. And so as part of that, you know, he's likely going to get a lot of foot injuries. He's going to lose some toenails, oh, which grim. let's not think about that for too long. Um, stress fractures, also very common in sort of ultramarathon runners. Obviously blisters. Yeah. Um, Patella syndrome, which is known as runner's knee. Like a lot of runners get that. It's quite common. Uh, shin splints, also very common in runners when your sort of shins literally feel like they're splintering. And just general, lots of sort of wear and tear on tendons, ligaments, bones, everything. Yeah. Um, but, you know, these aren't unheard of in ultramarathon runners. Mm. These things happen and people can still run on these yeah. injuries. Yeah. Um, but in the film, he does say, when I got tired, I stopped. When I got hungry, I ate. When I had to go, you know, I did. So that kind of shows that, you know, he's not pushing himself physically. Yeah, like he's, he's having a break. Yeah, he's taking breaks when you need to. So we can assume that he's stopping regularly, having some water, having some sleep. And which is also good. You know, he's not, he's not, it's not a race. He's running because he wants to run. Mm-hmm. So basically, I think, you know, the distance isn't, isn't, unth- well, the distance when you say in 15,000 miles is perhaps unthinkable. But recently, a guy called Rob Pope from Liverpool, he actually set off from Alabama, which is where Forrest Gump sets off from. And he ran for 15,300 miles. So that beats Forrest's 15,248 miles. Wow. And not only did he beat it, he actually ran it in 420 days. So he ran a lot further and faster That's than Forrest. That's very impressive. Um, so I think that really proves that, yes, this is physiologically possible. Physiologically possible, but maybe not recommended. Yeah, maybe a little don't try this at home disclaimer on this yeah. one. Yeah, um, maybe stick with your like 5, 10k run on the weekend. Yeah. So that's all from us on sports and exercise physiology. We've heard from Sam Scott on his study on home-based HIT and how it might help to reduce exercise barriers. And from Ruth Wood and Ildis Armatov, who spoke to us about the influence of testosterone in enhancing sports performance. I've been Amy Warnock. And I've been Emily Wilde. And we've been getting physiological. Physiological.
This podcast has been brought to you by the Physiological Society.